0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com slash the dig and by N plus one magazine, which features some of today's most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left, including a lot of work authored by guests who have appeared right here on this podcast. N plus one's brand new issue Headcase is now available in print and online, and it is full of great pieces that are perfect for DIG listeners like you. One that might be of particular interest is Tim Barker's review of former Fed Chair Paul Volcker's recent memoir, Keeping At It. In his review, which Corey Robin has called the best political essay of the year, Barker discusses the massive consequences of the dizzying financialization that began in the late 1970s and challenges the powerful narrative of inevitability surrounding the era of widespread unemployment and deregulation inaugurated by the infamous Volker shock. Instead, Barker argues an alternative might have been found in an incomes policy a solution that offers compelling contemporary possibilities for today's debates about job guarantees and other political economic interventions. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N plus one, go to N plus mag.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig at checkout. No space, just the dig. You'll get three issues, plus full access to the magazine's online archive, and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Donna Haraway received a PhD in cell biology from Yale in 1972, but she was eventually hired as the first feminist theory professor in the country in the History of Consciousness program at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Radicalized amidst the 1970s movements of women's liberation and radical scientists fighting the appropriation of their work by capital and empire, Haraway used her training in biology to think through a new basis for politics in a world where reactionaries point to human nature and biological fact to say all change is impossible. Her groundbreaking work defies disciplinary classification combining the insights that come from the study of both biology and feminist thought, and drawing on her own involvement in political projects organized around feminism and radical science. Her famous Cyborg Manifesto is a classic work of socialist feminist thought. Over the years, she has written on primates and dogs, science fiction and biotech, Across all of her work, she is deeply interested in what we mean when we talk about nature, and in how our understandings of nature are conditioned by both material reality and cultural meaning. Today, I'm turning over the mic to Jacobin contributing editor and political theorist Alyssa Battistoni, a close reader of Haraway's work, to interview none other than Donna Haraway. Against the insistence that nature is just how things are, Haraway's work investigates how ideas of both nature and human nature are historically specific and cannot be understood outside of specific contexts. Her landmark study of primatology, primate visions, gender, race, and nature in the world of modern science, opens with questions that have animated her work. Quote, how are love, power, and science intertwined in the constructions of nature in the late 20th century? What may count as nature for late industrial people? What forms does love of nature take in particular historical contexts? For whom and at what costs? Haraway argues that, quote, in the wake of post-World War II decolonization, local and global feminist and anti-racist movements, nuclear and environmental threats, and broad consciousness of the fragility of Earth's webs of life, nature remains a crucially important and deeply contested myth and reality. Haraway's most recent book, Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Thulu Scene, takes up these questions as the fragility of Earth's webs of life is becoming frighteningly and increasingly apparent. What are the ethical and political demands in the face of the most pressing threat of our era? Catastrophic climate change. To stay with the trouble, Haraway argues, is to reject techno-fixes that will save us from doom on the one hand, and on the other, to reject the pessimistic idea that it's too late to make the world better. The book outlines a view of what Haraway calls multi-species flourishing and the obstacles to achieving it through theoretical insights and speculative fiction imaginings. In Staying with the Trouble, Haraway also offers the slogan, Make Kin, Not Babies, and calls for a gradual reduction in the human population by way of people voluntarily choosing to have fewer babies and to make non-bio kin instead. She has been heavily criticized for this argument. So-called overpopulation, of course, is an issue that has been instrumentalized by the racist right wing, including, as I document in my forthcoming book, by the founders of today's anti-immigrant movement. Alyssa presses Haraway on these critiques, and while I'm not convinced by Haraway's answers, it is certainly clear that she's not a racist or a eugenicist and is arguing for something very different. Haraway's work analyzing the politics of nature and science remains urgent in a world where a black female Olympian is defined out of womanhood because of her hormone levels, white supremacists form a major customer base for the genetic testing company 23andMe, and capitalism threatens one million species with extinction. And on that note, two glossary notes. Haraway mentions two manifestos that you might not be familiar with. The first is the Leap Manifesto, which was a proposal collectively drafted in Canada in 2015 by representatives from labor, Indigenous rights, environmental, and food and social justice movements. The Leap Manifesto calls for a Canada based on caring for the earth and one another, proposing an economy in balance with the earth's limits, centering Indigenous rights and in titles, care work, renewable energy and public services and infrastructure. Second, Haraway cites the Xeno-Feminist Manifesto, A Politics for Alienation, first published in 2015 by the feminist collective Laboria Cubanix. Xenofeminism declares itself to be vehemently anti-naturalist on the grounds that anyone who's been deemed unnatural in the face of reigning biological norms anyone who's experienced injustices wrought in the name of natural order will realize that the glorification of nature has nothing to offer us. Wary of nature's use in justifications of gender oppression, xenofeminism declares, in the name of feminism, nature shall no longer be a refuge of injustice or a basis for any political justification whatsoever. If nature is unjust, change nature. So, those two definitions are for your reference. Before we get rolling, this podcast takes a ton of work to put together. And under capitalism, of course, time, along with most everything else, costs money. We provide all of our episodes for free so that everyone and anyone can listen. And we can only do so because. Those of you who are listening who can afford to contribute, do so at Patreon.com/slash/TheDig. Even five bucks a month is a giant help, and a donation of that size also gets you access to our newsletter. If you contribute ten dollars a month or more, we will send you a copy of either Feminism for the Ninety-Nine Percent by Tithi Bhattacharya, Nancy Fraser, and Cynthia Rutza or Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad hater, or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. Contributions of $20 or more a month gets you a package of a bunch of left-wing books. So, if you haven't yet and can afford to do so, contribute now at patreon.com thedig. We have a ton of plans for this show including a website that I'm very excited about that'll be online very, very soon and that'll make it a lot easier to search our archive by subject and guest and whatever. We need your support to keep this up and running and to make it all bigger and better. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Please hook it up. Anyhow, thank you. Here's Donna Haraway, Emeritus Professor of History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the author of many things, including the text that I mentioned earlier. She's interviewed by Alyssa Battistoni, a PhD student in political theory at Yale, an associate member of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, and a member of the editorial board at Jacobin.
1: Donna Haraway, welcome to The Dig. Well, thanks for having me. I wanted to start out with some questions about science and politics, which you've obviously thought about for quite a long time. And it's conventional wisdom these days, or it's become the conventional wisdom, that we're living in this moment when science is under attack. So you have Democrats accusing Trump of waging a war on science and even on truth itself. Trump is said to establish these or establishes these alternative facts, and his establishment critics warn that we're entering an era of post-truth politics. So climate denial is one obvious and obviously important example of this. But you lived through the science wars of the 1990s, uh, as they were known, when you and other scholars investigating how scientific knowledge is produced and how it's produced in social and historical context, we're sometimes accused of undermining scientific authority. So you'd like to hear what lessons you take from that history and how can we defend science without falling back on some idea that scientific authority is unquestionable.
2: That's a, a complex uh set of of concerns and questions. And let me start by saying that capital S science is not what I uh, want to talk about and feel a uh, really strong need and desire. Um, to help flourish, but sciences and scientific practices and scientific ways of knowing with each other, that I think that the practice of the sciences is really crucial to flourishing. But I think capital S science is exactly the kind of abstraction that ends up uh, being part of systems of binaries. You're for it or against it. You're denying it or supporting it. And maybe worst of all, you're asked really crazy questions like, do you believe in science, which is a fundamentally barely secularized um, question for for confessional affirmation. Do you believe in God? Do you take Jesus as your personal savior? Do you believe X, that it's fundamentally a barely secularized um, way of thinking about the world that is inherited from the Protestant Reformation and the wars of religion? So one of the things that I think happened in the science wars in the 90s is that people like me, the feminist science studies people, folks like Bruno Latour, who were developing notions of actor network theory uh, just before that time, folks like Scott Gilbert, who was teaching feminist science studies in biology classes at Swarthmore, people like Patricia Hill Collins, Sandra Harding, um, we were accused of being... Social constructionists, that is to say, relativists, that science was nothing but social construction, um, and that our arguments about positionality and material meaning, materialist meaning making, and historical conjuncture and the relentless historicity of knowing practices, those things were taken as nothing but social construction. Therefore, an alternative social construction uh, could equally make a claim. And what is to uh, validate your social construction over someone else's social construction? I think many of us kind of walked into that accusation by not always being careful enough about our own idioms. Um, and, And I also think there was a tremendous amount of bad faith attack, both from the left and then later from the right from a certain aspect of the, of the left that regarded people like us as um, uh, inadequately materialist, as perhaps too much readers of Foucault, too much taking up the critique of them, of historical materialism and, the, and uh, the left that supported it. I think in many ways that was wrong and that there were alliances that were deeply weakened by the attack from the left on myself and others like me, but I also think in retrospect that we were uncareful about building our alliances more um, more invitingly, about um, being more careful of idiom, that at no point were any of us social constructionists, but we were, um, in my own idiom, um, committed to the notion of situated knowledges and historical conjunctures, and that an entity like, say, the organism is made but not made up. That the organism is that kind of entity that materially, semiotically comes into the world as a system of production and reproduction, as a system organized by the division of labor, as an energy using and producing system, that various kinds of systems theories that uh, perhaps were developed in economics or in um, digital sciences or wherever, that there was a kind of sharing of cognitive apparatuses for entities that emerged at an historical conjunction, uh, conjuncture that included the, um, the emergence of techno-capital and techno-science. Is that to say the organism is made up and it's just a social construction no. It's profoundly materialist. It's non-optional. And it emerges as a way of engaging with ourselves and the world in specific situated historical um processes.
1: So I think it's really great. And and one of the things that I that I appreciate about your work is that you've never been uh, fully for or against science those way that you're describing, or sort of, you know, this big science that you're either pro or anti- or or something like that. And in your book, Modest Witness at Second Millennium. You sort of phrase this in a really clear way where you you say, quote, I remember that anti-Semitism and misogyny intensified in the Renaissance and scientific revolution of early modern Europe, that racism and colonialism flourished in the traveling habits of the cosmopolitan enlightenment, and that the intensified misery of billions of men and women seems organically rooted in the freedoms of transnational capitalism and technoscience. But I also remember the dreams and achievements of contingent freedoms, situated knowledges, and the relief of suffering that are inextricable from this contaminated triple heritage. I remain a child of the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, and technoscience. My modest witness cannot ever be simply oppositional. Yes. So can you tell me more about how uh, we can hold together these things and, and situate ourselves today in relation to uh, these projects that have held such great hopes and promise that are also plagued by such dark histories and uh, you know I, I guess coming back to this question of sort of what to do how to how to situate ourselves with in relation to um, the enlightenment techno science in the trump era and and in an era when when there sort of is this polarization or we're, we're sort of being told for science against science it's also important to uh, remember that the horrors that I was
2: describing in that quotation are not simply past tense, that there are ongoing scandals um, that involve the practice of the sciences as well as ongoing liberatory projects and ongoing ways of coming into connection with others of the world that are really essential to going on well with each other. So that um, I think, for example, of the um, co-optation of scientific practices by the tobacco industry, um, and then by it, uh, by the automobile industry, by, um, certain kinds of uh, digital Technologies that there remains a kind of science for hire embedded in techno capital that must remain um, a site of deep critique, but that critique is never enough that critique can name uh, the forces of um, the forces of oppression repression, extraction, exterminism, uh, but that critique must also open up that which might be but is not yet. Um, in that old critical theoretical phrase, the established disorder is not necessary. And scientific practices are really crucial to that opening up. Um, uh, and that uh, I think of myself as really in love with the sciences and more to the point, in love with the mortal finite earth, in love with the mortal finite Beings that we are, human and more than human, and that the sciences are profound historical achievements for bringing into presence really strong, strong facts, strong truths, strong, strong materialist semiotic realities and that holding on to that for the possibility of more livable presence, more environmental, reproductive, and other kinds of justice and care, holding on to that engages the sciences and scientists all relentlessly, and critique is part of that job, but never the core of the job. The core of the job is opening up the possibility of love and care, and indeed some kind of partial repair for the damages that are done and in significant ways irreversible.
1: Absolutely, and and one of the things I I think has always really come through in your work is this is pleasure in science, which I'm, I I want to ask you a little bit more about in a in a moment. But I do want to ask again about sort of what where should we position ourselves when we hear Trump saying something like climate change is a Chinese hoax, and then uh, you know on the other hand we have a kind of his opponent say, well you're you're for science or you're against it. You you pick one or the other. What can we what can we say to that?
2: Well, it, a little, it depends a little bit on what forum we're in when those issues arise. There are certainly contexts in which I foreground my belonging to the defend science movement, the claim of objective factuality over and against a kind of raw and cynical relativism of the Trump Trumplandians. I think there is a time to foreground uh, strategically uh, a kind of affirmation of a scientific fact And I think fights around climate change are sometimes places where that needs to happen or indeed often places where that needs to happen. But most of the time, including when we're in situations where climate denial is happening, I think it's more important to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me say something about how strong knowledges are built. Let me say something about how climate models work. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at why this cannot be a question of opinion. Let's look at how and why these kinds of affirmations about the earth are not optional, are mandatory. And let's look at the cynicism of the other side. Let's look at the self-interested, in fact, greedy Bad faith affirmations of the deniers. Let's not produce a false equivalence here as if this is just a question of belief or non-belief or you're on that side and I'm on this side. Let's instead with a tremendous amount of confidence and skill lay out for each other in everyday language why and how uh, scientific knowledges, for example, about climate change, hold and are worth living and dying for. I think we need to resist false equivalency that this is just a question of belief.
1: I want to ask you a bit about your own history of involvement in radical science movements, and uh, in so you were involved, I think, in Science for the People uh, in Baltimore in the late seventies. Yeah, uh, which is Science for the People is an organization that emerged in response to a, a variety of. Uh, political issues, including the Vietnam War, the rise of nuclear weapons, the feminist health movement, um, and other radical political projects of the era. But it's also, it's been recently relaunched. They've uh, restarted their journal. They're forming new chapters. That's happening amidst quite a lot of other sort of radical science organizing. So there's tech workers organizing, you know, climatologists are getting radicalized. There's a lot of action out there. So uh, could you tell us a bit more about your experience with Science for the People and other radical science projects and what you think radical science can look like today? I think that I came of age um, in the context
2: of radical science movements and uh, as a biologist, that it was as a biology graduate student that organizing against chemical and biological warfare, for example, and as a feminist uh, in consciousness raising groups of the late 60s that the boston women's health collective and the roots of feminist feminist science politics and feminist science epistemologies were and are in social movements every bit as much as in um disciplinary uh, university rooted uh, knowledge-making practices, so that my sense of being a radical scientist grew out of the critique of the electronic battlefield of McNamara, and my teaching high school teachers in Honolulu, the history of science in the 1970s during the Vietnam War, when the Mac- when McNamara is laying out the the hardware and the doctrines of the electronic battlefield in relation to Southeast Asia so that you can't teach science to the secondary school teachers as paragons of rationality, which was really my job. I was teaching for a general science department that was supposed to teach non-science majors why science was superior to religion and politics. You can't do that in Honolulu in the middle of the electronic battlefield. The whole way of thinking about the capturing of science by war and the, cap- the in relation to pesticides in the sugar and pineapple fields, in relation to labor disciplines of imported and extracted labor, that was primarily labor labor of color, uh, the multiple sciences that that were part of an apparatus of petrochemical industrial militarized capital was essential to thinking about what was happening in the world, and this came from um, my position as a science teacher in Honolulu and before that as a biology graduate student at Yale. So it was with other graduate students and with some of the, some of the faculty, many of the faculty actually, that we were part of science for the people in that era, profoundly growing, you know, our our connections with wider social movements came from our practice as scientists, not against science. And that a crucial part of that was the necessity to uh, work against the techno-industrial, petrochemical, scientific capitalist juggernaut, uh, which turns into one word. And then The relation of feminism and and anti-racism to all of that is really critical. The uh, degree to which U.S. imperialist wars were inherently racist was part of the critique of the 70s and 80s, and indeed before that, also the anti-nuclear movement that grew out of um, the post-Hiroshima and Nagasaki and um, uh, Cold War space race and nuclear race, the importance of scientists as well as critique of science in the peace and anti nuclear movement. Also, I was a TA in a course that taught about scientific racism. I TA'd for that course, I think, in, oh, I don't know, 1967, where the history of scientific racism was the subject of, of a Yale biology course. Um, and so all of the TAs were biology graduate students. Several of us came out as feminists in that era, in terms of the consciousness raising groups of of that of the late '60s in New Haven. Several of my uh, graduate student peers were women who founded the feminist organizations in Women in Cell Biology after leaving graduate school. So I think I'm saying that I, I really came of age as a biologist and as a political person in science-based and health-based movements that were that were anti-imperialist, anti-racist, and feminist. And it simply remains true through all kinds of changes. Uh, the historical conjunctures uh, show both tremendous continuity and also some pretty radical breaks. For example, the urgency of environmental. Uh, justice, multi-species environmental justice, or maybe better, multi-kinded environmental justice. The word species does a certain kind of violence to the many kinds of beings, human and non-human, who are at stake. The urgency of environmental justice and care has surely intensified in the period since Science for the People was originally founded or since the Boston Women's Health Collective took up its work or since Shulamith Firestone wrote Dialectics of Sex and so on, so that I and many others are way more called to account by indigenous sovereignty movements that are really attuned to the questions of sustainable care of a fragile earth and its peoples, capital P peoples, not just people, uh, the inadequacy of a um, democratic science politics that doesn't pay attention to indigenous sovereignty issues around around land and water struggles, the importance of that to any kind of adequate science politics. I think we're more called to account by the global or earthwide homelessness, the earthwide forced migrations of both humans and nonhumans. That we live in a time of extraordinary forced dispossession and forced homelessness. And it cannot be approached simply as a humanist affair. The multi-millions of human beings displaced are extraordinarily urgent. Um, We see that uh, across the Middle East. We see that across Central America and into the United States. We see that all over Europe. We see it in Southeast Asia. One can go on. The forced homelessness of human beings is intensely present, and has to evoke many kinds of science related understanding, including what climate change is already doing to force homelessness on all sorts of human beings. Much of the immigration into the United States from Central America now, in 2019, is the result of deeper and more frequent and irregular droughts that are forcing already highly vulnerable farmers. Off their land and into forced migration. That's not in the news. It needs to be in the news. So the the human aspects of it are are really important and intertwined inextricably with the human aspects are the more than human and non-human aspects of it. So that the, the kinds of species extinctions and forced dislocations of other critters and forced disruptions of timing so that insects might have their babies when their flowers have already flowered and and uh you know set and, and can't set seed because their pollinators are now out of sync with them or their um the temperature tolerances of the organisms that need each other have changed and changed out of sync so that there's a kind of forced dispossession of home that is a multi-species affair and of course uh the best scientists among us have to be part of a, part of an understanding of what real alliance has got to look like, what the politics and sciences of partial healing and partial restoration have got to be, what kinds of technological changes are friendly to this, and what kinds of technological changes are only going to deepen the trouble. The intensity of science for the, the people, when by people we have to mean both human and non-human peoples, that the prejudice of humanism that was overwhelmingly part of the feminism and radical science and science for the people and anti-racist movements that I was part of in the 70s, 60s, 70s, that humanism has has been decisively displaced by something that is not anti-human but other than humanist um, and that requires um, approaching the urgencies we're part of as critters of the earth together. Uh, and that any kind of real justice and care is going to require that kind of work and the sciences are friends in that project for the most part at least the biologies are
1: yeah i think one thing i hear you saying is that something that rattle- radical science can do is to to stitch humans and the the crises that we face sort of into this deeper web of life well but wait a minute it's the deeper web of life for sure but it's
2: also recognizing Uh, that um, scientists shaped up in Western-related frameworks have got to recognize that other ways of knowing and living on the Earth have always been present and are still present, and in many ways have proposed some of the most important cognitive, political uh, ways of knowing, so that if we're really serious about Leave It in the Ground and Idle No More and Water Defenders and other kinds of movements – It's really critical for scientists not just to deepen the web of life in our own idioms, but to get it that our own idioms must be in complex contact zones with other ways of knowing and being in the world that can tend to flourishing. Many of those ways of knowing and being in the world get the name indigenous these days for good reason, although the whole invention of the term indigenous has its own interesting history. But... I think it's really important to build contact zones with existing ways of knowing and being and acting in the world that make the sciences and scientists understand that we are in an entangled alliance with each other and not the ones who name, we're not the ones in charge, including not the ones in charge of knowledge, and that that is not relativism, it's relationality.
1: With that, I want to turn to this, uh, the idea of the Anthropocene and its alternatives. Uh, and so the, the Anthropocene has become this uh, pretty popular concept that names the age uh, when humans have become ostensibly a ge- geological force shaping the planet. Uh, and then some Marxists have responded, no, the capital scene is more accurate. It's on humans as an undifferentiated mass who have done, uh, who have shaped the planet in these ways. Not all of us have done the same things. Not everyone is responsible in the same ways. We live under a system of domination and exploitation and, and expropriation and inequality, and we need to take that into account. But you've you've come up with a third concept, the scene. And can you explain what the Thulocene is? Is this a reference to the H.P. Lovecraft character Thulu? And why does it better describe the forces that have shaped the world we inhabit than either the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene?
2: First of all, it's not indebted to Lovecraft.
1: And I made an oral, a U-R-A-L,
2: mistake. Um, and his Cthulhu and that multi-tentacled patriarchal monster of the deep uh, has literally nothing to do with what I wanted to invoke by the Thulu scene, and I should have named it the Thanos scene, because I was really in. Uh, I think I made an oral mistake because at some level Lovecraft was in my subconscious and kind of emerged before I realized it. This is a poor, a poor apology. But the fact that that what I'm trying to propose with the Cthulhu scene gets appropriated to Lovecraft's Cthulhu is in the way. It constantly has to be cleared out of the way in order to make room for what I'm trying to say, which is those of the earth, uh, those of the of the underworld and the surfaces and the tissues of the earth, the phonic ones, the ones of the earth, human and non-human are not merely ancient. They are now. They have never ended. They are ongoing. And they are we, that we are phonic. We are of the earth. And that phonic is a Greek term, and it's in a kind of avid lust for other kinds of idioms and terms that the thonic has many attachment sites for other other kinds of tentacularities for example the naga of the indian ocean or the spiders of of other kinds of story cycles that the thonic is also a kind of interrogative term that asks can uh, robust attachment sites be built between these heritages of the, of those of the earth within Greek-derived cultures and ways of thinking? Can we make robust alliances with other stories, other idioms, other ways of knowing? The Thulucene is a propositional statement uh, that the time of the earth uh, is not over and that it is not innocent. The earth is not some loving mother. It is what is at stake. We are we are what is at stake, both human and not human, and that this is not the same thing as naming the time of the capitalocene and its what shall we say roughly five hundred year calendar, or the time of the anthropocene. And its and its debates about dating and its misnaming of mankind as such, as the culprit uh, in the in the shaping of the earth for destruction. I think all those terms are important and necessary, but. So I don't want to get rid of terms, I rather want to work by addition, and I want to propose the ongoing time of the earthly ones, and with Anna Tsing, we proposed, she and I proposed a term called the plantationocene, that maybe before we think about capitalocene, let's think about the invention of, of the plantation and what makes the plantation happen approximately 500 years ago. The radical simplification of place, the radical simplification of systems of living together, of ecosystems, the extermination or displacement or expulsion of most existing beings who live in a place, most certainly including the people, genocide, displacement, transportation, and the substitution with other crops other laborers forced labor the forced labor of crops the forced labor of people the whole history of the slave trade in relation to sugar and the triangle the triangle trade of africa brazil uh, and europe and then moving into the caribbean and then what became the us south that the invention of the plantation and its modes of labor discipline its modes of plant discipline its modes of simplification transportation and substitution and it's forming a model for the for the invention of, a, of the industrial factory with its carbon based economies also it's important to remember that some of the machines of the plantation Ocine were fossil fuel based machines uh, as well as extracted labor based forced reproduction including forced reproduction of human beings and the breaking of the possibility of um, autonomy, of reproductive control, both of plants, animals, and human beings, the disruption of sexualities and generativities and reproductivities in such a way as to extract forced reproductivity or forced death, forced life and forced death. In its forms that come to be called modern, I think are rooted uh, fundamentally in the invention of the plantation. So I would uh, give a whole lot of foreground attention to the plantationocene, capitalocene, anthropocene, leavened with the time, the ongoing time of the earthly ones, the the thulucene or the thanocene but by the time you end up with all these scenes you also have uh, um something like a joke you have the you know the multiplication of the litter of terms and then say well you know then there's the cyber scene or you know you can just keep multiplying things i think that's not true i think if we propose a new container to think within, a new container to invite people to come in and see if we can uh, think well with each other and maybe act well with each other. That container has to do something that our other available categories are not doing well enough, not in order to get rid of other categories, but to propose a kind of interrogative addition. So that's the spirit in which I propose the Thulu scene or the Thanocene and the Plantationocene.
1: I want to also ask you about another term, which is what you call responsibility, uh, which is a frequent theme of your work. And this is responsibility is, uh, is, is response, the word response joined with the word ability rather than sort of responsibility as we think of it as a singular word. It sort of raises a question of how we can be attentive to one another and respond to one another uh, both to other humans, but also to members of other species and, as, as you've said earlier, to other kinds. So can you say more about why you're so interested in responsibility, how how you see this being enacted and what it says about what our ethical and political obligations are in the Thulu scene, the plantation scene, and all of our other scenes? Ethical thinking, uh, ethics,
2: are often proposed as lists of rules with what is good and bad kind of known in advance and then lists of rules or a kind of sorting of the good from the bad and a um, a series of um, principled actions that must be taken as if they can in some sense be listed as responsibilities. I'm suggesting that it is more fruitful to think about ethics as an inquiry, as an ongoing practice of cultivating the capacities to respond, of response ability, cultivating the capacities to respond to the historical conjunctures, to the worldings, to the livings and dyings that we and others are part of, both having inherited discernments of that which does damage and is death-dealing and, ge- and genocidal and exterminationist, inheriting a great deal that is known from the complexities of, of histories, and Being in an historical conjuncture, in time, place, complex temporalities and spatialities now, where we don't know in advance what is to be done, where we are inquiring with each other how to respond to the urgencies and and double death, the the killing of ongoingness that we non-optionally find ourselves to be part of. So what we have to do is cultivate, cultivate a kind of openness, cultivate the capacity to respond when we don't know in advance the shapes that that's going to take, when we can't just list responsibilities that have to come to know what is to be done with each other. And the term response hyphen ability uh, is a kind of uh, orthograph- orthographic provocation to understand capacities rather than rules and the strengthening strengthening of each
1: other's capacities to respond to the urgencies that grip us. And you you are so attentive to this relationality, which I really appreciate and and also offer this idea in staying with the trouble of sympoiesis in response to the kind of idea of individual autonomy. It's, it's a, what you describe as making with and this idea that we're always making ourselves with others. We're not just sort of a self-made man out there shaping ourselves as individuals. And could you say a bit more about sympoiesis and what that helps us understand?
2: Yeah, uh, and this relates to the notion of responsibilities, as that is tied to a kind of what Karen Baran would call onto-epistemology, a theory of being and a theory of knowledge, that works by individuals plus relations equal X, equal results. So that units plus relations combined in various ways produces results. And the units are bounded. They uh, enter into relationship as already bounded entities and then something results. Rather, I and many other people propose a becoming with, a way of that relationality is all the way down and you never have units plus relations, you always have relationalities out of which things like units and relations sediment as partial temporary kind even if long lived temporary kinds of sedimentations, but that relationalities among open kinds of uh, of beings that are in living and dying relationalities with each other are what are. As Scott Gilbert puts it, we are all lichens or we are all corals. We are all already and always have been uh, in in what Karen would call intra-relationality, that our fiction of bounded entities has um, is doing us harm because it it leads us to misapprehend the becoming with that is the world so that worlding and becoming with is being of the earth so uh, i you know i'm hardly alone in insisting on a kind of relentless becoming with each other and understanding an epistemology that way And noticing all of the places and all of the ways that the prejudice for methodological individualism of various kinds, units plus relations and lists of rules and lists of responsibilities and breaking things down into binaries and other similar geometries are poverty of the imagination about possible geometries for becoming with each other and having become with each other. So there are pasts as well as presents and futures in complex complex entanglements here. So I work, as much as I can, I work in gerunds rather than nouns and verbs, ing words, because in English, ing words do a lot of work. But ing words, gerunds don't translate very well even into other Western languages, much less uh, the many languages that people use to try to understand these kinds of matters. So there's also an interrogative uh, dimension to the affirmation of becoming with, thinking with, which is how widely does this travel and where should this travel be limited? What are the attachment sites and what kinds of decompositions as well as compositions should we be engaged in so that we build a compost pile with some skill? It takes layering. It takes attending to its heat budgets. It takes... A kind of care about what what goes in and comes out. Um, The timing is of issue uh, in composting. The kinds of cultivating of capacities to live well uh, have to be taken really seriously. This isn't just a substitution of another vocabulary, but an invitation to a kind of playing and working with each other toward cultivating responsibility.
1: Well, I want to ask you about another gerund, which is uh, storytelling, uh, which you argue is is crucial to the practice of thinking and a crucial practice for these times. And you've been intensely attuned to the question of storytelling and language and narrative for decades. So in Primate Visions, your book about primatology, you argue that scientific practice may be considered a kind of storytelling practice, a rule-governed, constrained, historically conditioned craft of narrating the history of nature. And you've referred to different kinds of fictions, myths, narratives throughout your work. So can you tell us more about storytelling and why it's so powerful? What kinds of stories you're trying to tell? Maybe also what are some of the limits of storytelling? Or how does changing the story translate into changing relationships of power and domination and material conditions? How do we translate that kind of uh, narrative change into political change? I think storytelling is one of the crucial tools in our in our toolkit for
2: a kind of partial healing um, that I call worldliness. But I think storytelling is really critical, not optional. Everybody doesn't have to do it exactly. But let me approach that question from the point of view of my love for and identification as – a biologist, love for biology, I don't think a serious person can do biology without being immersed in storytelling. For example, you can't tell the history of time and you can't tell the history of the coming into being of mortal critters in evolutionary time and process without storytelling. Uh, It's a dramatic story and it's necessary to thinking in evolutionary ways. I don't think we can um, engage seriously with ecology and with the multiple relationalities of critters with each other in time and space without telling the stories of the of these relationalities. I don't think you can tell the story of the development of a mammalian embryo through time or of uh, the shaping of a microbiome or the mycorrhizal mutualisms of a pine forest. These are all profoundly narrative practices, and it's within narrative that other kinds of practices also occur. For example, quant- quantitative analysis or experimental testing or, 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 or. Uh, so that I think narrative practice is one of the threads of a complex braid of a coming into relationship with the world biologically. It's also one of the threads for coming in relationship to the world in terms of questions of multi-kinded justice. Questions of justice and care are questions of who lives and who dies and how, and those are questions of storying the world with critical attention to its exterminations and extractivisms and critical attentions to its capacities for play, and opening up possibility, play as engaging to uh, in ways that open up that which has not yet happened, but may yet happen. That storytelling is a, a really critical part of all of that. And then also, I just happen to be a person who can't get through the day without fiction. Uh, it's, a, it's a personal quirk, perhaps. <laughs> I read, I listen, I think in stories, I I laugh at stories. I propose stories to my dogs. They propose stories back, or at least I so imagine. Storytelling is a source of intense, sensual engagement with my life. That's not true of everybody, nor does it have to be true of everybody. I think we need each other's sensibilities. On the other hand, I think to think that storytelling is just something you do when you're sort of popularizing something Or explaining something to somebody else, but the real work is done somewhere else. Thinking of storytelling as other than a knowledge practice is crazy and it's wrong. And that storytelling is a knowing practice and vice versa and that storying has many shapes to it. We have all kinds of narrative theory that have emerged within narratology and semiotics and the rest in university practice in the last uh, couple hundred years or so. That's really valuable and really interesting. But storytelling is much older and much more diverse than that. And uh, there are many more ways of thinking about the practices of of storying and story cycling and the relationships of storying to the building of, co- of the cosmos, to cosmology. I've, I've written about the way, for example, the Navajo engage in Na'atlo, which translates into English as string figuring or cat's cradle, in relationship to astronomical practice, in relationship to the storying of the emergence of the people through the the various uh, times of the worlds, that these kinds of storying and doing and engaging are not the same thing as the kind of storying practice I engage in when I write the Camille, Camille stories in Staying with the Trouble, for example. I engage a kind of science fiction or speculative fiction. But there are attachment sites. And I think my work is to try to uncover and make available sites for possible attachment
1: and alliance, as opposed to identity and sameness. I also want to ask, uh, maybe to put the question in more Gramscian terms, how does changing the story relate to changing the world? Do the stories we tell translate into that kind of change automatically, or how how do you see that happening? Well, it certainly doesn't
2: translate automatically. On the other hand, unless we tell stories of possibility that that give us heart, stories that keep us vital and alive with each other, unless we are storying with each other about that which might be, about that which is not caught by oppression, repression, extraction, exterminism. Unless we engage in a collective imagination of that which we are lusting toward, that which we are lured by, uh, we are stuck, we are paralyzed, uh, and we will die in despair and cynicism that storying is a really important part of giving heart for change, as well as imagining possible change. Uh, I think a a technologist uh, imagines a machine as part of making a machine. I think the same is true of politics, that we imagine a polis, we imagine um, the ways of being with each other in collective life, and then that's part of making it possible. It's also part of experimenting that we are storytelling. I think science fiction plays this role often is a kind of experimental imaginative practice that it, that it proposes in imaginative and narrative terms, that which can be taken up in practical terms, in community councils, in social movements, in proposing certain kinds of technologies rather than others with gramsci who i think really understood uh, the vital nature of of narrative and imagination and and truly play that critique in the sense of of um only naming naming the trouble will not allow us to stay with the trouble for that we need a way of building with each other that which can be and only then do we have half a chance of bringing it into being
1: I want to return to the questions around science fiction and the Camille stories, which are some of the the fictions that you've been writing. But first, I want to ask you about your uh, famous attempt to offer what you called an ironic political myth faithful to feminism, socialism, and materialism. And this is the Manifesto for Cyborgs, Science, Technology, and Socialist Feminism in the 1980s, which was published in Socialist Review in 1985. So the review had asked you to write Five pages on the priorities for socialist feminism in the Reagan years. You gave them 30 pages. That became a classic. Uh, and it's been, uh, you know, it's almost 35 years old, but I still find it so helpful in thinking about our present circumstances. Uh, I still find it a very effective <laughs> political myth. So oppression and thinking about the shift to post-Fordism, that is the shift to this regime of specialized production and flexibilized labor and post-industrial economies. And you write about the way that that's changing family structures, the rise of globalization, the rise of the service economy, which you call the homework economy. But it's also so sharp about the problems of political agency on the left, which is a problem that we are, of course, still dealing with. And uh, you write, quote, I do not know of any other time in history when there was a greater need for political unity to confront effectively the dominations of race, gender, sexuality and class. Could you tell us about that time, uh, why you thought it was so important at this time to to sort of struggle for that kind of political unity to confront those dominations. And what it reveals if it seems like we're still living in such a time, it certainly seems to me uh, that we are, are still struggling for that. I think that goes
2: back to the uh, first part of our conversation when you asked me about um, radical science politics and science for the people. And I answered in part by describing Honolulu with its plantation economy, its electronic battlefield and militarized economy, uh, with its uh, suppression of Hawaiian people's Dispossession with its tourist economies and the rest, with its, in short, with its informatics of domination, its C cubed eye. And my first job as a, t- as a university teacher was in that context. And then I was already trained as a biologist in molecular, cell, and developmental biology, then moved into a lab with a theoretical um, ecologist, theoretical population biologist, where cybernetics were a really important part of the thinking. I was very interested in systems theories. You couldn't not be interested in systems theories and actually take seriously what was going on in digital technologies, in labor systems, uh, in war. So the emergence of the cyborg as a figure for um, inhabiting the world in that period of the 60s, 70s, 80s was, uh, in a sense, inevitable. And also, I was a reader of science fiction, especially feminist and anti-racist science fiction, like Samuel Delany, like Joanna Russ, like Vonda McIntyre, like Octavia Butler, um, uh, like Ursula Le Guin. These these science fiction writers also uh, make uh, inhabiting figures like cyborgs practically inescapable for people like me. Cyborgs now in the figure in the 2019, uh, the continuities are obvious. But if I were to write about the homework economy now, I would probably rather write about the homelessness work economy, the multiple displacements in lifetimes and places of labor as the mode of contemporary labor discipline. That it's less the homework economy, though it is also still that as it is a disaggregation of lifetimes, into those kinds of pieces where value creation, value enclosure, and value extraction through the disaggregation of place and time might be better named homelessness and the homelessness economy across human and non-human worlds. The homelessness economy of the plantation with its labor systems for plants, animals, and human beings. And today, you can talk about that in terms of contemporary monocropped agricultures And its ongoing displacements of human beings from the land, both in the very wealthy economies like our own, its permanent entrapment in heavy mortgages, heavy land rents, its ever-deepening capitalization of the uh, exploitation of soils and waters and genomes, I think I would call this the homelessness economy and I would still insist on bringing together the biological the military the capital the technologies the the fictions the questions of of environmental and reproductive and people's justice the questions of ongoing ongoing racisms and new kinds of racisms the the ongoing disaggregations of sexualities and generativities uh, and the struggles, the the struggles for a kind of possession with each other of lands and waters and bodies and human and non-human beings for ongoingness, against double death. I think I would still write a cyborg manifesto, though I I may, I might search for another word, another figure, although the, the, the cyborg figure still works pretty well. In a way, it was old-fashioned even when I first used it. But it's a popular term and people, you know, it has a lot of popular bite, a lot of popular grip. So, you know, I could still imagine writing Cyborg Manifesto version three or something like that, but it would be, I would be emphasizing the the historical conjunctures of both the struggles we're part of, the ongoing struggles for living well and against double death, I keep using that term, double death, which I get from Deborah Bird Rose, uh, an anthropologist who worked in Australia, who was taught by people. She worked with many things, including how to understand the ways that that uh, colonial settler colonialism and its offspring deal a kind of killing of ongoingness, not just living and dying. It's not death that's the problem. It's double death. It's killing the possibility of going on. It's extinctionism and that kind of extractionism that depletes the possibility of going on as mortal creatures, as mortal critters together. So I use double death as that kind of juggernaut. Of um, hyper techno capital, whatever you want to call it, and that the struggles were engaged in the, str- the pl- struggles, the work and play, not just struggle, but also the kind of giving each other heart and finding the sensualities and the pleasures that show us that despite Chicken Little, the sky has not fallen yet. Um, that it is that um, that is it is still, that the capacities to respond are still what are, and that it is our job and our play to bring these into the foreground against the double death of the urgencies that threaten um, and indeed promise multiple extinctions.
1: I certainly still find the cyborg to be a useful figure. And in particular, you know, as you note, there are some circumstantial or sort of uh, situational updatings we may need to do. But what I find really useful is the intervention that the cyborg's making into Marxist and feminist thinking about political subjects or political agents. So among the cyborg is many things, but one thing it is is also a response to the Marxist idea of the proletariat as the universal subject, the universal worker, uh, and the feminist idea of woman as a universal category. You argue against this kind of assuming this kind of universality. We can't count on something like woman as a universal category that erases differences of race and class and more, and argue for constructing a new politics around, uh, not around this kind of presumption of a universal agent, but on the basis of a sort of patchwork of identities and interests and affinities and this thing we need to stitch together by way of solidarity. And so I find that really useful. And I wonder if what you make of that kind of, do we still need that kind of uh, political work today?
2: The short answer is yes. Um, The word subject is a tough one uh, because it carries so much baggage. On the other hand, I've never been one to work by – you know extreme hygiene, so I'm not so interested in getting rid of terms as I am removing their capital letters so that any notion of a universal subject is clearly um psychotic uh, on the other hand, to think of questions of subjectification and the making of um the making of beings, the making of living and dying uh critters into those sorts of entities that that serve double death subjectification in that sense uh seems to me still important also i think the the making of uh the uh, historical crafting of desires and pleasures and lustings the the construction of subjects in always under revision psychoanalytic terms the re- the revisions of um, the notions of desiring subjects, and that perhaps desiring itself cannot be any longer approached simply in humanist terms. I really am very patient and okay with continuing to use languages that perhaps emerged in onto epistemologies that I think have become psychotic, removing the capital letters and still using the terms in more everyday ways. I'm a little different from my friend Bruno Latour in this regard, who, you know, is sort of abstemious about not using the term subject. Uh, And I will use it um, in a kind of a very protean and uh, processual way. But he'll use the term agent, for example, in agency, which I will too. But I think the term agent carries just as much promise and trouble as the term subject. For example, Bruno uses the term agent, as, as well as some other people, to be That which is an agent for and that which is an agent that does. Agency, agents, agency does things and it is an agent for something else. It is a substitute. It relays, it relays action. Agents relay action as well as substitute. And agents, agent is a really interesting, complex term. And Bruno, I think, has taken up notions of agency and does, and done really rich things with it often misunderstood and fixed with a kind of hard eye by Marxists who are really worried about Bruno's admitted anti-Marxism and and then read tone deaf for the kind of creative work that I think Bruno Latour is doing. So I think what I'm saying is that it, uh, it remains terribly important to think with each other about who is doing what within these conjunctures that we're trying to describe with and for each other. Uh, that what kinds of actings and agencies and subjects, what kinds of doings and consequences are we taking up and proposing? Because what we do has consequences. We inherit a lot of languages that bring trouble, but I'm way more interested in staying with the trouble and opening it up than I am in subtracting polluted language
1: this is sarah jaffe and you are listening to the dig with daniel denver my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the us left and beyond and you can support it on patreon.com
0: hey this is dan denver the host of the show you've been listening to i'm cutting into this interview to tell you about a new film socialism an american story My very dear and old friend Yael Bridge is making this smart and funny documentary about the history of socialism in the U.S. and its current resurgence. She's been filming for several years and is super close to finishing. Right now, she is rushing to fundraise so that the documentary can be out in time for the primary voting season where it can make the most impact. It's a movie you'll be able to show your friends to help explain why we're socialist and why it's a real thing in the U.S. Bernie's latest tax returns notwithstanding, there aren't too many rich socialists out there. So the filmmakers need ordinary socialists like you to donate at SocialismMovie.com. That's where you can get to their Kickstarter. It's at SocialismMovie.com.
1: Perhaps moving away from the, I guess, the question of what to call the subject, the agent, uh, the sort of form of political action or, or solidarity or togetherness we're, we're thinking about. I wonder maybe we can talk about what, where we see those. And so and you write about not only cyborgs, but what would you call cyborg societies in the manifesto. So you write about the Livermore Action Group, uh, which protested nuclear research at Berkeley's Livermore Laboratory um, and you call it a cyborg society that's committed to building a political forum that actually manages to hold together witches, engineers, elders, perverts, Christians, mothers and Leninists long enough to disarm the state. Uh, and you also write about the Greenham Commons Women's Peace Camp, where thousands of people, mostly women, camped out uh, in protests of a UK military base housing nuclear weapons about efforts to organize SDIU District 925, which was a... Done a prominent campaign to organize uh, office workers who were mostly women. I wonder, uh, maybe rather than sort of talking about whether subject or agent uh, sort of best describes these, what kinds of, what are today's maybe cyborg societies or movements or who are they trying to hold together uh, and, and where we can see that kind of um, political movement and, and perhaps what kinds of political movements you've been following or participating in or taking note of or thinking about? Well, that list from the 1980s
2: is still pretty um, pretty applicable to today, uh, but it it happens that Starhawk, who did the spiral, who led the spiral dances in the Santa Rita Jail, in the Livermore Action Group, and other nonviolent direct action anti-nuclear direct action movements that I was writing about in the Cyborg Manifesto, and of course Starhawk, Starhawk is one of our most generative Wiccan thinkers, actors, and who is the center of um, a kind of agriculture-based, hydroponic, justice-oriented work in Marin County. Starhawk and I did a gig together uh, just a little over a year ago. And I think it was very interesting that she and I came together again 30-ish years later and find that we're still involved in the spiral dance together and that that dance has mutated And it's mutated in these kinds of ways for me, for example. I think that the action on the Dakota XL pipeline is a really good example of the kind of coalition, the kinds of politics centered, first of all, in the defense of of sovereignty and lands and waters of the peoples who are being extracted yet once again, and the building of robust alliance politics, which were very worldly and indeed worldwide, um, that kind of coming together against petro, petro Capital and its ongoing projects that brings people together in place in the tar sands in Alberta, uh, in the petrochemical um, extraction pipeline projects, in the fracking in Monterey, Monterey County in my own world, that that kind of coming together in place-based struggles around water, petro, petrofossil capital there's a lot going on like that there's also a lot of coming together around uh, around my immigration issues watch the alliance politics on the border watch that amazing collective art project that mural project going on right now along the uh, around along trump's wall the kind of collective art that is bringing together uh, the peoples of the border and watch the convergence of uh, of people who care to the border and a building of a kind of uh, of alliance for corridors, corridors that have to include also paying attention to the other critters, the birds, the butterflies, the creatures of the underground, the creatures uh, whose reproductive continuity across the border uh, we'll and are being destroyed by the building of walls, the coming together around the green wall in Israel. I think that the building of coalitional politics that's going on, that 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 is happening. It's not like I'm inventing this out of whole cloth. But which can be strengthened even further, the building of politics around corridors and against walls for the well-being of multi kindedness is a major kind of, cont- of needed contemporary politics.
1: Before we move on, I want to return to sort of my first general question on this uh, and ask what you see as the relationship in this kind of coalitional politics between uh, recognizing difference and organizing for political unity and solidarity uh, in order to combat these dominations that we are still so much with us.
2: Our, by which I mean the left, uh, in all of its little versions, feminist and otherwise, is so ready to fragment and split and find some kind of purity criterion where I, why I can't vote for person x i'm interested in in not refusing each other because someone's main politics are in another camp i'm interested in continuing to name why one objects to something and holding each other to account and working with each other on the green new deal on leave it in the ground so i think there's a lot going on uh, a huge amount going on and that uh, what we need a whole lot more of is figuring out how, how not to make each other the enemy, um, and how to uh, be forcefully for some worlds and not others, because our actual enemies on the, on the fascist right across the world right now are numerous and strong.
1: You've named a lot of movements. It seems to me there's also been a real resurgence of both socialist feminism, eco-socialist feminism, and sort of energy and and politics around these strains of thought that you've long been involved with. So I'm curious if there's anything in uh, sort of contemporary feminist politics, socialist feminist politics that you're particularly excited about at the moment.
2: I am uh, tremendously excited about what I experience as a resurgence of socialism, uh, certainly in the United States and not only in the United States including socialist feminism and that the kids from my point of view I'll be 75 soon people much younger than me are are leading a kind of a reimagining resurgence recrafting of socialist feminism partly in connection to some of uh, what they have inherited uh, partly against some of what they have inherited. And really energetic kinds of politics and manifestos and and proposals are emerging, some of which I feel somewhat close to, though I'm not really organizationally close. For example, I'm much more in tune with the Leap Manifesto, uh, partly because of the degree to which it's not so relentlessly humanist compared to what I think of as the xenofeminist feminist emergent feminisms that are also socialist, I think, but... Insufficiently critical of its relentless humanism it doesn 't really pay much attention um, to the what I think of as us earthlings and is way more uh, friendly with certain kinds of techno abstractions than I am I think that 's how I experience, but i 'm not against it it 's that i 'm not part of it, and that what I feel like I am part of right now is the Center for Creative Ecologies that T.J. Dimos leads on my campus that involves alliances of artists and biologists and social movement people, including lots of Latino American alliances. And I'm I'm getting ready to go to Colombia in August as the guest of a group of scholar activists who are engaged in working with farmers who are attempting to secure land rights and secure uh, crop security over and against both the Uh, narco crop scene and the forced crop substitution for export, the um, agriculture for export, instead trying to build robust agricultures and land rights for local and regional markets and the kinds of alliances needed for that, including with university agricultural research scientists, other kinds of activists. I feel very close to this. I'm really close to performance, other art, and other kinds of art activisms like I, I experience on my own campus and elsewhere. And uh, with Adele Clark and others, Kim Tallbear, Michelle Murphy, Chi Ling Huang, and Yuling, Yuling Hu, uh, Ruha Benjamin, Alondra Nelson, uh, with uh, with a group of a group of allies, I'm really engaged in trying to think about the questions of human numbering and human uh, human numberings and distributions in relationship to other critters and in relationship to the change and intensity of human numbering in my own lifetime where the numbers of human beings on this planet from the time of my birth, which was about 2.3 billion ish, to the time I'm likely to die if the life insurance companies are right, where there will be about eight and a half billion people on earth alive. So from 2.3 to 8.5 billion human beings in one rich white woman's lifetime. I feel like the left has given up thinking about that because of the misogyny, racism, eugenicism, Malthusianism, ismism, the, the, horrible uh, population control and racist politics of population apparatuses, and that the left, including the feminist left, has given up thinking about the issue because of the horrific apparatuses, uh, Malthusian apparatuses for addressing it. And I feel like I and my allies have taken on trying to think about this otherwise, because not thinking about it isn't going to help. Michelle Murphy is the most radical in refusing any kind of population language for dealing with this. I and Adele are probably on the other end of the spectrum saying we can't not continue to use the idioms of population and we can can use them in anti-Malthusian ways. We can foreground that the greatest damage to the earth is being done by the Overwhelming reproductive extravaganza of the rich—that having one or two babies in the consumerist, hyper-consumerist worlds of the rich—remains uh, the greatest planet, uh, the greatest damager of the planet of reproductive practices on the earth. And it is mainly, but not only, a white practice. The middle classes are growing globally, and they are committed to intensified meat eating. And this is a cross. The white, non-white binary won't help in terms of understanding the structure of the growing global middle classes and its commitment to fossil-based consumerism uh, and meat-eating, and for that matter, non-fossil-based consumerism with with its global giant techno projects without accountability to the mining of the rare earths and the recycling of the waste from the solar arrays and the wind arrays and the rest of it, the kind of Hyper irresponsible hyper consumerism and reproductivity of the wealthy, but not only. The reproductivity or the generativity of the non wealthy um, is also at stake. And, but it's crucial for everybody engaged in thinking about this to get the point that people all over the world have been reducing reproductive rates radically and even below reprodu- replacement rates, except those human beings subject to the worst kinds of extraction, permanent war-based economies, uh, misogyny and racism, both internal and external. Those, those peoples of the earth who are still experiencing uh, the birthing of babies seriously over-reproductive rates are those people who are most extracted, most marginal, and in fact, doing the least damage, even though damage is being done to them, including the the tremendous barriers against the the control of their own place and families and reproductivity, including such things as population control programs that emphasize uh, the implantables and the long-term methods over and against women's control of our own bodies, with contraceptive contraceptive methods that women actually want to and will use and are part of developing, that the emphasis on the long-term methods in contemporary population programs uh, is part of the problem, not part of the solution. I'm also thinking that people like me, I have a little bit of credibility as a feminist, as a, as a radical science person, as a person on the broad left, I have a little bit of credibility. If people like me don't raise the question of human numbering, who will? Because younger people raising this in public are going to get murdered by the feminists. I have been screamed at when I give talks that you aren't a feminist anymore, you can't possibly be a feminist, if you're talking about questions of human numbering and population, Uh, that this is nothing but a resurgence of misogynistic racism. Uh, The kind of screaming Uh, If people like me can't take that and say, wait a minute, you are mishearing. Let's start over. Deep breath here. Let's think again. I'm using words like population as little as I can and densities and distributions of numberings and whose impact on the earth is really mattering most here. What kinds of consumerism is embedded with what kind of reproductivity? There was a great cartoon the other day that had a. It was a Mother's Day cartoon. It had the stork bringing a baby, seven pound baby, and seven hundred pound consumer package, with the little Humvee strollers and the uh, the the hyper consumerism of every rich baby. That says um, rather well a good a good bit of what I'm trying to say, and it really really does matter that there is almost no way to not have more than 8.5 billion human beings by mid-century and by the end of the century, by 2100, if and only if reproductive rates continue to fall, will there be as few as about 11 billion or 11.2 billion human beings, and that to not talk about that and leave that as something to be talked about only by the professionals or by the right wing is a huge abdication by the left, in my opinion. And so since I'm, you know, my eggs are all fried, I'm old, if I don't use up a little credibility I've got on this
1: matter, uh, how can
2: I expect someone else to do it?
1: So as as you've just been describing, you have been criticized a fair amount for raising this question of population for the slogan of of, in staying with the trouble, which is um, one of the slogans is make can not babies. I mean, you've just described some of your response to these criticisms and the, you know, kind of the history of the politics of population, but... Knowing this bleak history of the politics of population, um, we're amidst a resurgence of white nationalism that is fairly obsessed with fertility and with repressing the fertility of brown and black women in particular, increasing the fertility of white ones. Is this a moment when the left can really reclaim population?
2: Well, yes, it better and it better do it, it. Let me put it this way. Rethink human numbering. Rethink ways of making kin including, but not only babies, emphasizing making non-biogenetic kin. For example, really allying with immigrant families, really making this a pro-child word, world engaging in making kin by asking what will produce a serious pro-child world here, because right now we are living in a pronatalist and anti-child world that is being defined by the right wing and where the reproductivity of some is still regarded as trash babies and the reproductivity of others is insufficient and not enough and needs to be promoted by tax policies or by lifting one-child policies or by Paul Ryan saying there aren't enough babies by which... he meant rich middle-class babies, mainly white, uh, even while he opposes immigration reform. I think paying attention to homelessness of the way I tried to describe it earlier in our conversation, the homelessness of both the human and the more-than-human as the state of being on borders and and elsewhere too, and learning to make kin across kind— as little biogenetically as possible, but while supporting all of the born ones, you have a baby and by God, I have your baby's back. Having each other's babies back is part of reproductive justice. And the babies of the heavily extracted and marginalized baby, those babies need people at their backs. They need alliance politics. The, The understanding of what broke why are there eight and a half, you know, going to be eight and a half billion people on this planet in the very near, near future? It's not for Malthusian reasons. I think it's because of the plantation because of the breaking of people's attachment to place, the breaking of the connectivity of humans, plants, animals, microbes in place that, that are part of a always imperfect balancing and imbalancing of numbers, that a kind of forced reproductivity and anti-reproductivity. Activity within the Plantation scene and Capital Ocene. I think that's what broke the back of, of reproductive well-being and that the kind of, of hyper-numbering of human beings on this planet is a generative disorder of the Plantationocene, not as Malthus, as Malthus described it, and looking for solution, solutions in Malthusian ways is, I think, misnaming the remaking of kin in generative ways across categories, including restoring capacities to um, renumber. So I, Donna was accused by a close ally, in this case, Sophie Lewis, uh, and quoted in The Guardian in a review of um, Staying with the Trouble by Jenny Turner as having, quote, a genocidal imagination for imagining the earth a couple of hundred years from now with about 3 billion human beings instead of 11 billion. So that the unborn billions constituted my imagining uh, they're not ever being born, constituted a kind of genocidal act, even while these same feminists are not pro-life feminists who will not accept the notion that the abstraction and hypervaluing of the unborn is um, – who name the anti-feminism feminist of pro-life politics – explicitly accused me of having a genocidal imagination for, in the Camille stories, imagining a way of stepping down human numbering with multi-species environmental and reproductive justice as the means and not just the goal. They called that genocidal. Uh, It made me furious. It's the only time I ever responded to a a review of any of my work in print. And I emailed both writers, uh, we had an extended email exchange. Sophie Lu- Lewis and I met over breakfast and bonded really in major ways. We worked through it because we are all feminists in this together. I don't think Sophie or Jenny particularly agree with me about my analysis of the make kin not babies or making kin not population exactly, although we found huge areas of agreement around making kin. And Sophie and I found immense areas of agreement around surrogacy and non-biogenetic kin making and all sorts of things. What we found, because all three of us, though we got really mad at each other and called each other really bad names, is that that couldn't be the end of the story, that we engaged each other as left feminists who needed to work through the trouble to come to a kind of alliance around urgent issues, including the issues of human numbering. So I'm actually telling what I think of it as a story with a kind of happy ending or or a happy ongoing out of an initial making each other, uh, I felt like I was made into an enemy in a particularly vicious way by other feminists. But they backed off and they backed off because all three of us took a deep breath. And I think that's the kind of thing uh, that we need to do with each other.
1: Well, and to ask a bit more specifically, how can a left approach to numbering or population resist nativism rather than assist it or, uh, or advance it even, even if unintentionally?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a really uh, immediate and direct way. I live in California. The fact that incoming, incomers, incoming immigrants into California are really critical to the ongoing health of this state and that having more rich babies in California is um, really a particularly bad idea. But welcoming immigrant families and building up labor health, building up residential health, building up paths, you know, ways to become Uh, legal, educational health, taking in and welcoming those who are fleeing uh, violence, a disaster, including much of it related to the history of American imperialism, but there's more to it than that. Fleeing climate disaster, a kind of pro-immigration politics, is in my opinion a, a reproductive politics. And it goes along with saying, Family size should be kept below replacement rate. Let's figure out how to do that in a way that takes care of actual babies, takes care of women who want to be pregnant, uh, that having a baby is not the name of the enemy, that pregnant women need support, that reproductive choice is still part of reproductive justice. Let's figure out how to do that in ways that don't continue to emphasize the ideologies that coming the only possible way to reach maturity Uh, is to form families and have babies. Bullshit. I think most women, or at least many women, uh, need kin, but don't necessarily need babies. And we need to build the emotional strength to build multi-generational households, to think about uh, urban and and other architectures that bring generations into contact with each other so that those who, who for whatever reason, uh, find a real desire uh, to make a baby can make a baby in a, uh, with a celebration of their kin, most of whom won't be biogenetic. So I feel like a pro-baby and a pro-child politics is tied closely to serious pro-immigration politics, which is about making immigration into coming into into living well in labor, in in housing, in health, in education, in welcoming. And those kinds of politics are exactly what we need to be doing. I think what I'm proposing is that this is also reproductive politics um, and that we need to oppose the pronatalism among us in every way we possibly can and that pronatalism is not the same as anti-babyism. I mean, it it is a fact that young women are having fewer babies. How can that be supported? The babies, the women, the everybody... Um, in a world that is really historically new. I don't think we're talking about this enough. I don't think very many people get it. Uh, that human beings are entering an historical moment when there will be fewer young people proportionately than ever in the history of this planet. And that this is a big deal. Um, and unless we're in a pro-child world as part of reproductive, as, as part of reproductive justice, which means paying real attention to which babies are bearing the heaviest burdens, and it's the most extracted and exploited babies among us. In other words, an anti-racist politics is more urgent than ever as reproductive justice politics. We need to talk about this all at once and not say or think that we can talk about every, we meaning the left, can talk about every aspect of this except naming how many people there are, that that's the part that's taboo. As soon as we name the actual numbers of human beings on the earth and how they're distributed and how the burdens are borne, as soon as we talk about that, we have gone over to the dark side nonsense. That's a taboo. And in the face of a taboo, we we need to learn to build our politics otherwise. And I think the left has been so afraid, improperly, of the racism of Malthusianism and its offspring that we have given up uh, relearning how to engage with each other at all on the question of numbers.
1: Uh, you mentioned Bruno Latour earlier, uh, the Science City scholar and philosopher, who you've long been in conversation with around questions of practices of uh, knowledge making and and of coming to know scientifically and, and the politics of that as well. Um, in his new book about the politics of climate change, which is called Down to Earth, he's also telling a story, what he calls a political fiction, in which he argues elites have dismantled the ideology of a planet shared by all. They've responded to the threat of climate change by basically making sure that they would survive it, even if uh, the rest of us don't. And I have to say I was surprised to read this because, you know, you noted Latour sort of has a reputation for anti-Marxism. He wasn't really who I expected to be calling for something that sounds quite a lot like class war, to be honest. And I was curious what you make of his sort of uh, turn to this explicitly political language the the myth he's telling, and the sort of role that the climate crisis is is playing in shaping that narrative, and how you your story is relating to that story.
2: well, Bruno is a really complex guy, uh,
1: and I think his
2: anti-Marxism in this book is as strong as ever. Uh, and as in some sense, irrelevant as ever. I think people concentrate on his anti-Marxism and forget that he came of age in a kind of Leninist, French Communist Party Althusserian moment and uh, that it looks very different from an Anglophone world. And uh, I don't know. I think that Bruno's anti-Marxism has gotten way too much airtime. I think it's true and kind of irrelevant to the Bruno Latour, who I find so generative and so helpful in his ongoing building of political fictions, so in this new one, down to earth, uh, Bruno is further developing his notion of earthlings or terien, uh, those of of terra, those of the earth, the earthlings, and coming down to earth, and his reworking of of notions of perspective from the earth, the thickness of the earth rather that rather than from space. So he. He works with landscape designer and um landscape designers and critical zone uh systems scientists to rethink perspectivalism from the thickness of the earth. And he's he aligns himself with the geosocial classes of the humans and non-humans, the technologies, the living critters, the rocks, the scientists, the people, the peoples, including uh including um. Peoples of of the of the of the world variously positioned the geosocial classes, who are working for coming down on Earth, for being down to Earth and in the Earth, and he is against those classes, uh, that will work a technofix for their own wealthy survival at the final expense, uh, at the at the expense of the finalized exterminism of the Earth and Earthlings. Bruno is talking about a certain kind of class war, which is geosocial class war against the extractors and the techno-fixers and the wealthy classes who are techno-capitalists. He is not proposing a kind of class war in a way any Marxist would necessarily recognize it. Although, I kind of take that back because I think there are plenty of green, eco-social, feminists, small-m Marxists who are easily in alliance with Bruno's fabrication fiction of the geosocial classes who are committed to being down to earth. So, there's one aspect however of bruno's political fiction making which i've always you know struggled with him about i really you know we keep fighting with each other we're still fighting with each other about this and that his, that's his ongoing use of war metaphors war tropes including class war but that's my argument with marx one of my arguments with marxism too i think bruto bruno who is a brilliant caricaturist or a brilliant cartoonist he is a brilliant political fiction maker um, he makes these radically simplified generative fictions that he proposes and that some of his critics make the mistake of taking literally, which is really weird. People who don't know how to read political fiction. The Bruno is a genius caricaturist, but for me, his caricatures always make much too much use of tropes of war. He did that in his work right before Down to Earth when he went back to Carl Schmitt, Um, and made use of war metaphors again. I don't understand why Bruno still finds war metaphors so ready to hand when I think his work is so full of much richer, much more earthy, much more engaging figures and tropes and fictions. But I am with Bruno in his down-to-earth Fictions, even while I struggle with him in some of its fabrications, but work and play with Bruno is really generative, and I think a person is a fool if they try to fix Bruno with a given set of positions and read him literally. I think one has to read as a smart reader of fiction, and his geosocial classes are the classes of Earthlings committed to an ongoing Earth,
1: um, and uh, and I'm down to earth with him. And you yourself has a have a long and complicated relationship with Marxism.
2: Yeah, but I call myself a Marxist, and Bruno never would. Uh, and absolutely, I, absolutely. You know, so I and I think that in a way I just think that's irrelevant because I think it comes out of uh, out of biographical contingencies. Bruno's also for, formed as a philosopher. He's always in rebellion against his formation as a philosopher. He's, he's formed in a Parisian intellectual context over and against the Althusserian positions of his youth. Uh, there are just huge numbers of inheritances involved in his emotional relationship to, to Marxism that are completely different from my own.
1: Well, I want to ask you about your own and sort of what you uh, you have, as as you say, can you know, continuously describe yourself as a as a Marxist. Throughout the years, even as you've also criticized Marxism, uh, you know, it's called it polluted as its source by its foundational commitment to the domination of nature, by its its impotence, you say, in relation to anything women did that didn't qualify for a wage. You've said we, but you've also said we, we need Marxism. It offers these critical tools for feminist theorists and other kinds of theorists. We can't leave Marx behind. So can you say more about what you see as sort of Marx's enduring relevance, usefulness, tools that that we get from Marx, uh and and how we can combine uh maybe, you know, Marx and ecology and feminism, which sometimes people um suggest are, you know, there's some people who say, Well, we can't quite do that. I, I certainly think we can. I'd love to hear you say more about how. I think it's rather easily combined. I actually think it's rather hard to
2: keep them separate because I think we owe to Marx, one of the first deep theorists of of the metabolism of human beings and the rest of the world, the metabolism of of nature, if you will, in in his terminology from from that period, that the the metabolic exchange of human labor with the sensuous materiality of the world is something that Marx paid attention to. And that we, uh, you know, I think rereading how he did that and saying, yes, but it's still way too much caught up in a kind of Hegelian apparatus and its humanist furniture and that can be taken much further and that metabolism uh, in Marx is still much too caught up with a kind of orthogonal for human beings. It's still too teleological. And that for earthliness, for earthlings, can't be teleological in the same way. It's not just the conversion through labor of all the world into humankind, but the metabolism of the world in an ongoing kind of eco-social commitment to uh, living well with each other, human and non-human. I don't think it's that hard to extend and expand. And lots of people are doing this. I am informed by more than I'm proposing myself. I think there is a a really rich uh, kind of work going on that is partially indebted to Marx. I actually include Bruno in that, and and keep trying to show him how much he inherited from Marx, which makes him slightly grumpy, but mainly he laughs, uh, because he has a huge sense of humor, that that just makes a difference. That my Marxism, you know, I grew up in Irish Catholic Denver. My mother's side of the family was Catholic, but in a um white middle class uh, suburban. You know, newly middle class out of the uh, hegemony of American imperialism after World War II, that came to the benefit of the of the white middle class in ways that you know were self invisibled, our own whiteness. Uh, anti Marxism was an intrinsic part of my own family. We listened to Cardinal Spellman. I used to think that communists were so bad that there had to be very few. So maybe we could put all of the real communists on an island and just explode one nuclear bomb over their heads. I remember having that fantasy when I was eight years old that communists were really so bad that there just couldn't be very many of them because I didn't know any really bad people. Uh, it was a childhood fantasy, but anti Marx, I grew up as and with Catholic anti-Marxism. And then came the opening up, including the opening up of of Vatican II Catholicism and the preference for the poor and liberation theology, which is profoundly Marxist, uh, which informed my late high school and college years the opening up of Catholic Marxism, which liberated me from the anti-Catholicism and the right-wing ideologies, the McCarthyism of my youth, so that I experienced liberation theology and its Marxism as an opening up, really a profound opening up. And then it was joined to the civil rights movement. It was joined to feminism and, and a kind of pro-reproductive justice feminism. The align- Marxism was an opening up for me. Uh, I read Capital with David Harvey at at Johns Hopkins during a period when the, the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins is very much part of the ongoing militarization of American science David Harvey and his reading Capital and Neil Smith and his Marxist geography Robert Young and the Radical and the Radical Science Journal Les Levittov Hillary and Stephen Rose On and on we go. I experienced Marxism as an opening up of the world and not as dogma. I didn't experience it it as a hard Leninist left that dominated the Labour Party of of the French Labour Movement, which I know is a horrible simplification of what happened in France too. But my experience of Marxism was as one of the openings up. Marxism was essential to the world I experienced in Hawaii. So Marxism for me was was never a dogma that I had to assent to, it was rather an opening up for not having to assent to dogmatism of the American imperialist right wing on the one hand and a particular kind of American Catholicism on the other. I think there are many of us who experienced Marxism as an opening up of thinking and not as dogma we had to assent to, but that's not true for Bruno.
1: That's all great and really tracks with a lot of, you know, what you're saying about Marx as a sensuous materialist is absolutely how I've always read Marx. And I think it's easy to forget how much of the kind of, you know, new materialism there is in the historical materialism and and uh, that exactly. that is that is part exactly. of it. And, you know, we can really there's a lot of uh, the material in in that reading of materialism. So uh, I'm glad that you mentioned all of that. And I want to ask you one last question about the the struggles ahead, as it may be. And in Staying with the Trouble, you write, quote, A complex systems engineer named Brad Werner addressed a session at the meetings of the American Geophysical Union in San Francisco in 2012. His point was quite simple. Scientifically speaking, global capitalism has made the depletion of resources so rapid, convenient, and barrier-free that Earth-human systems are becoming dangerously unstable in response. Therefore, he argued, the only scientific thing to do is revolt. Movements, not just individuals, are critical. What is required is action and thinking that do not fit within the dominant capitalist culture, and, said Werner, this is not just a matter of opinion, but of geophysical dynamics. And you may have probably just seen this report that just came out from the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services it shows that uh, animal and plant activity have declined by 20% in the past century, uh, one million species at risk of extinction. You know, sort of one of many reports we've seen that are, I think, reinforcing Werner's point. And in this recent documentary um, made by Fabrizio Terranova, uh, uh, storytelling for earthly survival, you emphasize, quote, it really is important to be in revolt. We do have to practice war. We do have to be for some worlds and against others. So which worlds uh, should we be for? How do we revolt? And uh, I guess how, in other words, do we practice war in the Thulucina? Yes, and there I
2: am. using. I'm being very Latourian there when I said practice war. In fact, I was referring to him directly in that little piece in the film, partly because I was talking to Francophone colleagues. But frankly, all of the serious scientists I know in my own life right now are in revolt. And I think that report of the IGCC and other similar reports are instances of that, that scientists are banding together, ecologists, climate scientists... Um, energy scientists, uh, the informatics scientists I know are banding together and issuing very radical reports that simply say, no more. Look at how severe and urgent the damage is, and that it's no longer possible to pretend that our public statements aren't part of our science. Uh, I just finished writing a little paper called The Treesnail Manifesto with a biology colleague of mine from my Hawaii days, who is a marine developmental biologist who's also worked against tree snail uh, exterminism in the Pacific Islands, who has decade by decade by decade become more and more and more explicitly activist and more and more explicitly recognizing his activism as part of his science and not as just an addition to it. That the doing of responsible science these days is also the doing of a kind of holistic, complex science that that is capable of making public statements about the depth of the trouble and about some of the things that are being done and can be done so that it is possible actually to reduce, um, to radically step down uh, fossil uh, fossil economies over the next decade. And without increasing the radical um, deepening of the mining of the rare earths, decentralized, sustainable, deconsumerist, non-fossil economies can be built. And we need our best sciences to think about how to do this. Uh, with each other, Uh, it really is possible to rethink and rebuild water infrastructures and water politics. We really don't necessarily need uh, the next dam project and the next giant pipe transfer project. It really is possible with each other, with our scientists, to redo water infrastructures and water sciences and water politics, and lots of people are already engaged in doing it. So, we need to find out much more about what's going on and realize that whatever is going on is not enough and join with it to make what we want to have happen stronger. It's not all that hard, actually, to imagine the kinds of worlds uh, that have, uh, that deserve a future, worlds that are truly committed to more robust kinds of diversity and taking care of the marginalized of a human and non-human kind worlds that refuse the kind of blissed-out techno fixes but build way more interesting kinds of technologies with each other. There's a lot going on. By the way, I include in technology such things as rethinking how to do how to do rents and housing and mortgages and banking and community banking and loans and holding wealth more regionally and locally, how to redo wealth instruments. I think we need some really uh, creative thinking among our economy economists, and financial experts um, that, that have got to be part of our allies, you know, all kinds of instruments. So it's not like I think we have a poverty of knowing what kinds of worlds need to be built. It's that we need to give each other heart to really stay with them and to not think that it's game over, that the enemy has already won. It's not true. And furthermore, I don't think we need to know who wins. To to stay with for a minute the geosocial war metaphor. I don't think we need to know fifty years from now or a hundred years from now what worked. We need to think hard about what we think is is workable. But what we need to do is build a thick robust, present with each other. And that gives us the best chance of having ongoing futures. We don't need to know what works and aim for some kind of distant goal. We need to aim for working and playing with each other in ways that make sense now. And that kind of now is what has half a chance of building futures that are, uh, that are livable.
1: Well, Donna Haraway, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun.
0: (laughs) Donna Haraway is Emeritus Professor of History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and most recently, the co-author of Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Thulu Scene, and co-editor with Adele Clark of Making Kin, Not Population. Alyssa Battistoni is a PhD student in political theory at Yale, an associate member of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, and a member of the editorial board at Jacobin. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, the view of nature attained under the domination of private property and money is a real contempt for, and practical debasement of, nature. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Our managing editor is Theoria Francos. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling people about the show and how much you like it. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com/slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this podcast up and running strong, even a few bucks is huge.